Good morning. Our reading today comes from chapter 18 of the book of Genesis, and it's found on pages 4 and 5 of your bulletin. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great tree of Mamre, where he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed down low to the ground. He said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. Do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed, and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham and what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see what they have done is as bad as the outcry has reached me. If not, I will not know. If, if not, I will know. The men turned away and went back towards Sodom, but Abraham remained, standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are fifty righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous and the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Be it far from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but the dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him, What if only forty are there? He said, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only thirty can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. Abraham said, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only twenty can be found there? He said, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Can we pray together? Let's pray. God, thank you for this time that we can hear from your word, and we know that you have a a great way of letting your word say things to us that sometimes is unexpected, sometimes is exactly what we need, sometimes is what we need even if it's not what we want, sometimes it's something that can simply just radically change our lives. We pray that you would do a little bit of all of that in the next few minutes together. Because your word is powerful, 
and your spirit is alive. So we pray that you would show us your power through your word, even now, in Jesus' name. Amen. About ten years ago, I had the opportunity to go to uh, Ukraine and take a short trip out there uh, with a team of folks uh, that was working with a church in Kiev as well as Odessa um, in that wonderful country. And one of my fondest memories about my time there in Ukraine was a trip that we took to an open-air market where we had the opportunity to interact with people with the best Russian we knew how that we had with us, that we had picked up through tapes and little things and bits and phrases and that sort of thing, and to sort of find ways to, well, bargain shop, to interact with some of the local vendors, to talk with them and see if we can come up with some different gifts for family members. I remember there was a great array of uh, wonderful Soviet-era trinkets that were so attractive and so historic. And one of the things I loved about that experience was just diving right in there, and I discovered this love I have, even to this day, for haggling. (laughs) Bargaining, wrestling, talking through, trying to get the price down. In fact, I was talking with Anessa, who's a native Russian speaker uh, a couple months ago, and she was surprised that one of the phrases that I happen to know is the sentence, the phrase, which is just about the only Russian I know, and it means how much does it cost. It's because of that day. I learned it that day because I used it about a thousand times, asking again and again, how much does it cost, and using all that I knew, the very little that I knew in Russian to try to drive the prices down. And it was fun. And in fact, the oddest thing of that day was I was so in that mindset, somehow a guy approached me, saw the shoes that I had, these new Nikes that were dangling from my backpack, and then he started haggling me for those shoes. They they were my shoes. And, uh, you know, I got the price to a good price and uh, actually sold my shoes. Who knew? You know, I I turned into a vendor myself. Uh, It was a little embarrassing. It's not why we were there, uh, but it was a lot of fun, haggling, bargain shopping. In today's passage, Abraham has this fascinating conversation with God that Brian read for us, and it almost sounds like he's haggling at a flea market. How about 50 righteous people, God? What about 45 righteous people? 40, 30, 20, 10. Well, what is going on here? No, Abraham is not being a bargain shopper. Abraham is playing the part of a priest. You might be thinking, priest, well, you mean that he was wearing a robe? Is that what you mean? Or did he light a candle or a stick of incense? I didn't really notice that or didn't really see in the story any references to a confession booth. Maybe those are some images and associations that you have with this term priest. By priest, what I mean and what the Bible simply means is a mediator, a a, a go-between between two people or two parties, someone who speaks to God on behalf of another person. You see, after enjoying a meal at Abraham's home, that's what's going on in the first part of chapter 18. God has just let Abraham know that he's going to bring judgment upon the cities nearby, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why judgment? Well, in verse 20, 
We're told that there's an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. And in the Bible, this language of outcry is always an expression for the cries of the oppressed and victims of injustice. And so in the next chapter in Genesis, of course, we see that the problem here is the problem of sexual oppression and injustice in Sodom. But also, in Ezekiel 16, God explains that Sodom's problem was also its social inequities and injustices, its economic oppression. Ezekiel 16, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Just a glimpse of how much these concerns matter to God. And so here's Abraham staring at the prospect of judgment being poured out upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And here he is personally and legally representing the people before God, seeking his mercy on their behalf as their priest, as their priest. He does this in in, in several ways in this passage, but for our time together, I just want to focus on two. Two ways that Abraham serves as a priest in this passage. We see in him a heart of sympathy and a voice of advocacy. A heart of sympathy and a voice of advocacy. And this is how Abraham serves as priest. Let's take a look. First, a heart of sympathy. Some of you may right now be applying for jobs, looking for some employment. So, of course, you get a job description of some listing, looking into some type of position, and you get also, what, a a list of requirements, a list of qualifications for that job, for the person taking this job. So you say, okay, this person needs to be organized, this person needs X number of years of experience in this field. Well, the book of Hebrews summarizes for us the job requirements of priests in the Old Testament. And this is what is said about priests. They were to deal gently with those who are ignorant and those who go astray. They're to deal gently, sympathetically with broken people, with needy people, with wounded people, with people that need God's help. Abraham, as priest, has opened his heart to the people of Sodom. He isn't just asking God to please have mercy upon them. He's pleading with them to spare the city. Do you hear the tone of urgency in his words? Even the length of the conversation in the back and forth. He's relentless. Far be it from you to be unjust, God, in verse 25. Far be it from you to neglect mercy. Far be it from you. May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. I've got to say this. You've got to do this, God. You hear the pleas. Abraham has emotionally identified with the people and their weakness. He cares 
simply put. And he's doing this, remember, not just for people who are easy to feel sympathy towards. You know, for us, that's people that we like naturally, people that we already care about, people that are good to us, people that if we show sympathy towards, we know we're going to get something in return. Not here. Abraham is showing care and sympathy to people who have wronged him in the past. Remember how in Genesis 14, if you were with us, as we've been going through this story, Abraham was greatly disrespected by the king of Sodom. In a great military expedition, Abraham, he he actually risks his life in order to protect and rescue the people of Sodom and to repossess their possessions that were stolen, kidnapped, raided by these intrusive other kings. He doesn't get any thank you from the king or from the people of Sodom. And yet still, he gives his heart away. Friends, being priestly like this for us means emotionally plugging yourself into other people and their brokenness. Feeling what people feel, feeling their pain, their needs, even weeping over other people, weeping over their sins and their failures. How often when we see the failures of other people, the first reaction we have is what? Self-righteousness. I'm glad it wasn't me. Or how could they do that? Or criticism. Or rolling our eyes. Abraham the priest is showing us a different way. You see people fail, you cry out to God for their mercy. And you feel it in your heart. And you do this in community. In Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul calls the people of God to bear one another's burdens. It's this wonderful picture of this emotional weight that's on the back of a person like a massive backpack. I don't know if some of you feel this way. You came in here today with just a weight of emotions or weight of brokenness or troubles or trials or something that maybe literally is making you buckle at your knees. The New Testament tells us that to be priestly like Abraham was a priest, is to say, come on over here and slide that big boulder or backpack and let me carry a little bit of it on my back too. I won't let you carry this alone. And being that sort of community... Are you that sort of person, a person that someone feels like they can go to and talk to about their troubles and their problems? That's what it means to be a priest. Are you the type of person that even when others screw up, or even when they know they're flawed, they feel comfortable to come to you? I've had friends in my life, maybe you have too, where you just feel safe with them. You feel safe to be yourself. And it's not because they're overlooking your wrongs or it's not that they're not free to challenge you at times because friends do that too. But you don't hear critique and criticism and condemnation as the first words out of their mouth or the first expression on their faces even. They're being priests. And they're willing to carry it for you. Sometimes even going beyond you and feeling 
what you feel better than you feel it. You know, we've all had friends who see something that happened to you unjustly or unfairly, and they're angry. And you start to say, oh, that's right. I should be a little bit angry about this. That wasn't right. Or a person who, upon hearing a story of brokenness in your life, maybe you lost a loved one, maybe you lost your job, or maybe life is just hard for you. Maybe that's your story today. And this person whose eyes just well up with tears, and you're not even weeping yourself, but you see them and you say, that's right, it does feel like that on the inside. A priest steps in front of you and feels what you feel even better sometimes than you yourself know how to feel it. Emotional health that's stirred up and that's cultivated and nurtured in relationship. And what does it look like then to be a a sympathetic priest in the neighborhood? Well, I think it means carrying the needs and the burdens of our neighbors as if it were our own. Friends, this is so important in a fast-changing neighborhood where people's needs are as wide and as diverse as you can possibly imagine where we are learning to watch different changes go about in the neighborhood, literally retail and commercial places and homes and different things and different people walking around, where we're learning to ask each other sympathetically, putting ourselves in other people's shoes, feeling the discomfort or agitation or challenges, and saying, learning to say, well, are these changes good just for me or for other people as well? That new building, that new business, that new thing, is this something that blesses the whole neighborhood? Not just, is it good for me and does it make my life more comfortable? Or the ways in which we can so often not care about trash on our block until it blows onto our front porch or our driveway or gets in our way. Or care about a school's effectiveness until we enroll our own child into those schools. What does it look like to be sympathetic priests in the neighborhood as well? And even towards people you feel like have wronged you. That's Abraham's story, right? Even people that you feel like don't deserve it. Maybe a person that you might consider an enemy even. Someone that's offended you, maybe a next door neighbor that hasn't been kind to you, and yet something is going on in their lives where there's an opportunity to let it hit you in the heart. Which brings us to this critical question how do you do it, you know? How do you do this? You can't just tell yourself to feel something you don't feel, right? You don't want to do it artificially, and if you try, it won't last anyway. What do you need? God's got to melt our cold hearts. And how does He do that? He does that by introducing us to the one who was the perfect priest to us and for us. His name is Jesus. The true Abraham. The true high priest. The New Testament repeatedly tells us that this is a right description of what Jesus has done for us. In Hebrews 4, we're told that Jesus is sympathetic towards our weaknesses. You have this in the reflection section in the beginning of your bulletin, but one paraphrase of a key passage in Hebrews 4 says this about him. We don't have a priest in Jesus who is out of touch with our reality. He's not out of touch. 
He's been through weakness and testing, testing, experienced it all, all but sin. You have in Jesus one who is sympathetic to all your brokenness, all your needs. In fact, when he walked this earth, one of the greatest words and most common emotional words that were attached to Jesus was the language of compassion. He had compassion upon the people. He looked out and saw a person that was crippled. He had compassion upon them. He saw a person that was lost. He had compassion upon them. He saw a crowd that had no leadership. He had compassion upon them. And the word that's used in the 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 original language for compassion, interestingly, is this word that literally means that he felt it in his entrails. It, it, it punched him in the gut to see the wounds and the needs and the hurts of other people. Do you know that when you bring the sorrows of your life I don't know what you're going through today. Maybe it's a wound. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's a trial that you can't overcome. Maybe you're just tired. Maybe you're ready to give up. Or maybe you're just numb to it. You don't even know what to feel. Do you know that when you bring that to God through Jesus, it punches Him in the gut? That's how deeply he feels it. You're not alone in this. He carries that burden with you, indeed, for you. This is your perfect priest who even weeps over the people as he did when he walked this earth, when he saw people's resistance to God. He's gentle. He's patient. And that is exactly why he was always surrounded by people whose lives were so not put together. People whose lives were falling apart, but who felt safe being near him. Because he was patient and gentle and sympathetic. Don't you see, friends, if you're near to Him, won't you start to become like Him? Don't you think it'll start to change your life and make you also into sympathetic priests in community and in the neighborhood? First, a heart of sympathy, and secondly, a voice of advocacy. A voice of advocacy. Earlier this week, I was walking down 16th Street right over here, down Irving Street and 16th, and I was actually thinking about this sermon, some of the pieces of this passage on my mind when I overheard a person talking on the phone about how they recently had to reach out and contact the D.C. Public Defender's Service. You know, the agency that is supplied by the government for those that don't have legal representation and need an attorney to represent them in court, right? And I was just excited, kind of tickled by hearing this reference, not only because I had interned there as a college student years ago and have a lot of fondness for that group and the work they do here in the city, but was also excited because it sort of fits this passage perfectly. A public defender... Abraham is serving as a priestly advocate, a legal representative, a personal representative of the people of Sodom, even defending them, as it were, before God. It's a 
bold thing that he does, and Abraham recognizes this. You see this in places like verse 27. He keeps saying again and again, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, he's almost apologizing. Look, I, I feel like I really need to say this again. Now, you understand, I'm not meaning to be rude here or overstep my boundaries, but let me be bold again. Can I? 40, 30, 20. What is he doing here? Look, in the original ancient language, Abraham's actions are described with highly technical and legal expressions. In verse 22, we're told that Abraham remained standing before the Lord, well, like standing before a judge. And in verse 23, Abraham, we're told, approached God, well, the same language, like a lawyer approaches the bench or brings a case or an argument in court. God, will you spare an entire city of unrighteous people if you were to find just a few righteous people? Would your justice and your compassion allow that? Would you spare an entire city of unrighteous people if you were to find just, let's say, 50 righteous people? God says, yes, I would, but I'm sorry, I can't find that many there. Here comes the haggler. Abraham, know the lawyer. Okay, then, will you spare the unrighteous for the sake of 40 righteous people? God, again, yes, I would, but I'm sorry I can't find that many. Well, how about 30? How about 20? How about 10? And then you almost expect him to keep going. You almost expect Abraham to say, but God, will you spare the unrighteous for the sake of just one righteous person? If you were to find one righteous person, would you then perhaps withhold your judgment from Sodom? But Abraham stops. He does not make that request. It's almost as if he knows there aren't 50 perfectly righteous people to be found, let alone one Not in the city of Sodom. Not in the whole world. And did you know that the entire story of the Bible is a cry to God, this search for just one perfectly righteous person for whose sake God might spare the world and withhold His judgment. Just one. Could you send one? If you can't find one, could you give us one? And he did. One day he did. And the person of his son, his son Jesus, the righteous one, the ultimate righteous one, whose life and death spares us from judgment, Jesus, who took this Sodom-like judgment that we deserve in our place on the cross, God who spares us judgment because of Him and His righteousness, hallelujah, this is how we're forgiven of our sins. This is how we have new life in God. This is how we have righteousness in the sight of God by having a relationship with the truly righteous one. This is... A picture, friends, of Jesus, who not only lived and died for us, but who continues even to this day, if you have a relationship with God through him, your priest, he continues to serve as your defense attorney. 
You say, what do you mean? Strange language. I've never heard it put that way. 1 John chapter 2. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate. Hello. One who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, who? The righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. And this is what we're told happens before the throne of God, in the courtroom of God in heaven, even in this moment, that Jesus is there pleading our case for God's continuing mercy and love and blessing and forgiveness. And just like Abraham, he's not making his appeal on the basis of niceness. God, Father, please just be nice to them No, he makes his argument on the basis of justice. Father, I have already paid the punishment for their sins, for those who have received me and trusted in me and identified with me. I have already paid that punishment, so you cannot punish them again. Double jeopardy, right? They call it in court, very simple principle. You cannot be punished twice for the same crime. Here it is. Jesus stands before God the Father in the courtroom of heaven with the scars of the nails that were in his hands and his feet and the spear in his side. The blood that was shed, the blood that we sang about, his death that was given in our place for us. Jesus is constantly reminding the court of heaven and his father, it has been paid, it is finished. Which is why the book of Hebrews says stuff like, well, what is Jesus doing now? He forever lives to intercede for us. He's still pleading that case. He's still pleading that case. Father, you must forgive them. You must forgive him. You must forgive him. If you don't feel forgiven today and you have indeed trusted in Jesus, did you know that it is not for you to persuade God to forgive you? Jesus is doing that work for you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He is doing that for you as we speak. And God will not change his mind on how he will be disposed towards you as long as your advocate stands before the throne of God in your place pleading your case. He's not going to change his mind. This is the grace of the gospel. Do you want this? I've been mainly talking to those of you who already have a relationship with God in Jesus. Those of you who don't or you're not sure if you do, don't you want this? You can have it. He offers it to you. He offers Him to you. An advocate. So that you don't have to be your own advocate. Oh, the terror of having to stand before God yourself one day as we all will, and if you would have to sit there and plead your own case on the basis of your own record of righteousness and unrighteousness. Wouldn't you rather have the perfectly righteous one do it for you? And he does. 
And do you see then, friends, that the more we start to see this heavenly advocate, our priest Jesus, we hear his pleas, the more it impacts our lives the way he does that for us, the more it makes us into priestly advocates of other people as well. Not only in sympathy, letting it intrude upon your heart, but now in words and in actions, standing in the gap before God and before other people, representing them and their needs. In a couple of ways. First of all, and maybe most importantly, prayer. This kind of prayer that's often called intercessory prayer. What does that mean? It means you are standing between God and another person and their needs, and you are bringing them before God. You are serving as their advocate, and you're saying to God, God, check this out. Notice their needs, please. Have mercy upon them. Be kind to them. Bless them. Be their God. And it's almost like that old game telephone wire, right? where you are standing on behalf of the other people that you're praying for, and then Jesus, your advocate, is standing on behalf of you before the Father. And that's how those prayers get to God. And that is why you know He is hearing them and answering them and responding to them. Interceding for people for their forgiveness. I said before how often when we see other people fail, Our first response sometimes is self-righteousness. At other times, it's celebration because we kind of have this sick pleasure in seeing people fall, especially with public officials. I don't know why it is that we feel like it's okay to celebrate the failures of public people. Jesus shows us a different way. Pray for their forgiveness. God, have mercy on them. They don't know what they do. Forgive them on the basis of the blood of Jesus. Praying for their forgiveness, praying for their needs, praying for your enemies. And God really does work in this in a special sort of way. I even actually experienced this this last week. You know, I'm not the strongest intercessory prayer person. I'm not. It's an area of growth for me. I'd love to grow together with you in this But I was walking down the street one morning earlier this week and one person came to mind and God put it upon my heart to pray for this person and just different needs that this person was going through in a hard time in different ways. And and I actually decided I'll shoot an email. Maybe it'll encourage that person. Maybe it'll be helpful or whatever. Just jotting down some of the things that God put on my heart to pray for them. Got an email response later on where the person said, you just don't understand the timing of that prayer was actually exactly in the moment when I needed it the most. When I was actually specifically wondering if I was alone in this issue that you were addressing. Look, not my wisdom, not my perfection. I told you, I stink at this. But the way that God can meet us because we dare to step out as an advocate on behalf of another person and uniquely strengthen, encourage, and bless one another to pray for each other and then to tell others that we are praying for them and lifting them up before God as priestly advocates. 
To do that for each other here in this community, to do that for some of our Bible club kids, please do grab one of those cards and intercede. Bring them before the throne of grace, before God, and all their needs, spiritual, practical, material, familial, everything, developmental. Pray for them and watch and see what God does. Maybe name one person, one person. Maybe someone you don't want to pray for, (laughs) right? Abraham, praying for someone that wronged him in the past. One person you can pray for this week. Another area is our daily work, a way that we can serve as advocates. How do our places of work allow us to serve as priestly advocates for other people? Well, you might be an attorney or work in some capacity in the legal world. That's one obvious way in which you are imaging forth the priestly work of Jesus by representing the needs of another person. But not just that, which is a pretty literal application of this, but I was thinking about this. Even if you work in the service industry, maybe you're a consultant, maybe you work in retail, or you're a designer, or you work in relief and development, or maybe you ha- uh, you're a house uh, cleaning person for a living, you represent the needs and the desires of your customers, your clients, the people that you serve. Do you see that you are representing them in this world, serving their needs, giving to them? Do you work with that sort of realization that you have an opportunity to be a priest an advocate in the workplace. But lastly, we see this in everyday life. Because even when you're not praying for a person specifically, and even if you don't see this directly applying in your workplace, in everyday life, the way in which we can draw attention to somebody's needs. Drawing attention in the church community, say, spreading word in your neighborhood group or just through relationships, through the wonderful grapevine about a person who needs help with moving or needs help with their kid or a person who's going through a hard time or someone that's just really weary and you play telephone wire, you tell one another, here is a real need. You're advocating, you're giving a voice to... A person that's in a time of trouble. Or even advocating through hospitality and welcoming folks into your life, into the neighborhood, or even into church. This is a wonderful thing that our welcome team does. They're an advocate, right? What do they do? Not just, hello, here's a bulletin, but let me get to know you. And then you become linkers. You're linking people up. You're telling their story to other people. You're inviting them into community. You're giving a voice to a need because sometimes it's hard to walk into a new church as a person that doesn't know anyone. You're an advocate. You're representing. You're bringing people into community and before God. But this also happens in the neighborhood as well. Friends, what group of powerless or vulnerable people in the neighborhood can we or you serve as an advocate for? Some group some vulnerable person, individual, or group of people that you can serve as an image of Jesus, as the hands and feet of your high priest, your advocate, by being there 
advocate. It might be perhaps a group of recent immigrants who not only because of struggles with the English language, but also because of lack of access to different resources, might need a little bit of guidance and help around our social systems or maybe just help around the grocery store. Or maybe it's children who don't even know how to articulate their needs or their problems or their struggles, and you're helping to translate for them the realities of the world, the realities of the gospel, and you're bringing their needs before other people in the community. You're giving voice, an advocate, giving voice to their story, to other people that can help and love and serve. Or maybe those that just don't have access to email or the internet. I mean, I mean, seriously, think about it, how much you can take for granted the access to basic resources that open so many doors for you on the job front or on the life front or the financial front. And maybe you're someone that's on the other end of that and you feel vulnerable and you feel like you don't have access to resources. Can we help? Can we love? Can we serve? We all have our different areas of vulnerabilities and needs. This is a way that we can all be priests to each other according to our different needs, advocating for each other, drawing each other into the presence of community and into the presence of God. And of course, not ever forgetting praying for our neighbors and doing like Abraham did to take these different folks that we have in mind that you've been thinking of in the last 30 seconds, a powerless or vulnerable group of people, and to say to God, God, don't forget these neighbors. Do not forget them. Please love them. Please serve them. Please give them what they need. Please draw near to them. Remember them, not just out of your niceness, but out of your justice out of your mercy, out of your fatherly, priestly care. What can that look like for you as an individual, for us as a church? A heart of sympathy and a voice of advocacy. Friends, do you understand this passage tells us that the grace of God, a rich, deep, personal, impactful experience of Jesus as our chief advocate and high priest starts to make us into priests of others around us. The book of 1 Peter describes those who have a relationship with God through Jesus as a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Revelation 1, to him who loves us, to him who's freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. If you are in Jesus and have a relationship with Jesus, or you hope to have one with Him one day, do you know that you're called to be a priest? Indeed, you already are one. Shall we live like one? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this call, for this invitation. Thank you for Jesus, this sympathetic, kind, advocating strong, righteous Savior that we have who takes fearful ones like us, dejected ones like us, who is able and willing to save and care for us, who will not turn us away, who advocates for us, who loves us. 
God, even as we ask for you to give us ideas and ways that we can apply this concretely in life, we start by asking you to open wide our hearts to our high priest, Jesus. Do that now. That's our prayer. That's our hope. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing. Let's sing the song that invites.